1: Producer Danielle and I were chatting about the new year, and we got onto the biggest new year of our young lives, the turn of the millennium. Do you remember where you were for the millennium? So obviously, so I was 10 when the millennium happened. Actually, I mean, I might have been nine even. I was born in 1990, so I wasn't out partying, but I was encouraged to stay up because, you know, how often do you see the turn of the millennium? Not once once every thousand years. Yeah. <laughs> so I was staying up, but I was in. So I was playing solitaire on the computer in the corner of the sitting room. And actually, it was the first time I'd ever successfully won solitaire on the computer. And being the nerd that I am, I saved the final click <laughs> for Jesus. the strike of midnight. <laughs> so as the fireworks were exploding outside, <laughs> there were cards cascading across my computer screen. Oh, it's almost poetic. It's beautiful, isn't it? I wouldn't go that far, but it's <laughs> it's it's nice. What about the millennium bug? Did you know about it? No. I feel like if I had heard about a millennium bug, I would have assumed it was a virus or something going around my school
2: <laughs> and that people were just
1: nicknaming
2: it after the new year.
1: I do remember it being mentioned but I can't remember if this is kind of in the run up to the millennium or afterwards but I definitely remember it in the context of oh yeah it's just this thing that isn't actually going to happen. It didn't ruin your solitaire game no. No it didn't actually (laughs) What were you doing when the clock struck midnight on the 1st of January 2000? Were you happy to say goodbye to the 20th century? Did you have high hopes for the 21st? While some of you were clinking champagne flutes or singing "Old Lang Syne," a lot of people were busy worrying about what this century might bring—the Millennium Bug, otherwise known as Y2K.
2: The basic software in a lot of PCs, in particular, processed dates in a way that didn't handle the rollover into the into the new century, and and that would. Mean that um, those systems actually stopped. And since they were used to control a lot of industrial systems, factories, and so on, nuclear reactors, people were very worried about what might happen there.
1: Next year is the 20 year anniversary of what some joked was one of the biggest anti climaxes to ever hit the globe. But some cybersecurity experts still want us to remember Y2K. And importantly, be mindful of similar events that could impact us in future.
2: The Japanese calendar works in eras that are based on weeks of the Emperor's reign. And so it restarts with, with a new a new era. So it, it becomes exactly the same structure as the Y2K problem.
1: I'm Jordan Erica Webber, and this week we're looking at what might have been, what actually was and what might yet still be for the millennium bug and others like it. This is Chips with Everything. So you've actually been on this show before to talk about Y2K at the start of 2017. So that was before Danielle and I joined. What's happened since then? Have there been any big changes in our understanding of Y2K?
2: No, the the myths continue. And One of the things that's happened is that uh, with all the discussion about the consequences of Brexit and, and crashing out of the European Union, Y2K has been invoked a lot by the people who want uh, an analogy for something that's terribly frightening but but won't happen and doesn't cause a problem. So, um,
1: it's- Martin Thomas is a retired expert in software engineering and cybersecurity, and emeritus professor in IT at Gresham College. He knows a lot about Y2K. But he doesn't know everything. Have you seen that Nike has started selling Y2K-inspired shoes?
2: No, I hadn't noticed that.
1: They've got, um, they're kind of, I guess, kind of uh, chrome-coloured to reflect the kind of colours of technology of the era. Why do you think people want to look back on the early 2000s with such fondness? Do you have any theories?
2: Perhaps because the present is fairly gloomy and the future looks worse.
1: We'll get to why Y2K is still relevant 19 years after it happened in a minute. But first, let's travel back to the turn of the millennium. Throughout the 1990s, people were preparing for the arrival of a so-called millennium bug. So I got Martin to explain what this mysterious threat was actually supposed to be.
2: There were a number of issues around the, the year 2000 and the way that dates are handled in computer systems. The big one... Is that for a very long time centuries have been left off dates so that you, you just get the the year number and of course we're still doing that if you look on the front of, a, of your credit card or bank card you'll see that we're still using two digits for the year we, we don't put the centuries in there. The problem is that most commercial data processing handles dates and most commercial data processing uses them either to sort things into order or to work out gaps between dates. You know, How long is the expiry period? You know, when, when does your, your um, security pass expire? How, how long is it safe to to keep this item of food before it goes off? And so you have to do arithmetic on the dates and you have to do comparisons on the dates. And if all you're doing is comparing the year without the century and the dates happen to cross a century boundary, you're in deep trouble.
1: OK, so if you go from 1996, say, to 2004, then all you're comparing is 96 and 04, and that yes. causes problems.
2: Yes, and, and the likelihood is that your software assumes that you're talking about 1904 rather than 2004, and you either end up with a negative number or you end up with a very, very large number, and both those things happened.
1: So what did people think was actually going to happen as a result of this, if this millennium bug arrived? What were some of the more extreme forecasts?
2: Oh, that... All sorts of things would break down, that lots of computer systems would would cease to work, that, that banks wouldn't function, credit cards wouldn't function. People were particularly worried about cascade failures across supply chains that that the supply of food would stop, for example, or that the uh, delivery of the chemicals for processing water wouldn't be possible, and that therefore water systems would fail, or even that the pumps for the water, would fail because they were computer controlled.
1: Surprisingly, we also have the British retailer Marks and Spencer to thank for warning us about Y2K. There was
2: a famous delivery of tinned meat to Marks and Spencer's that got rejected by the store's control system because it looked as though it was over a hundred years old. And under those circumstances the system was programmed automatically to reject the the consignment on the on the Goods Inwards uh, going into the Marks & Spencer store and to immediately reorder. And and they did. And, of course, the next consignment was rejected in exactly the same way. And at that point, they realised they'd got a problem. And then, increasingly, other systems started to fail. Um, anything that had to look forward to calculate an expiry date, for example, a, a pass for somebody to, you know, a, a library card or something like that, those systems started to produce silly numbers or, or actually to crash
1: one reason martin remembers this time so well is because he was one of the people working on y2000 prevention
2: i, I was a partner in, in deloitte and Touche. I'd, I'd sold my software engineering company to, to Deloitte in 1992 and so i was an, an i.t partner in deloitte and Touche. and i was asked if i would take over internationally for, for the deloitte and Touche consulting group the, IT, the Y2K service line, providing services to companies who needed expertise on, on year 2000 and who needed support in, in finding and fixing the problems. So, by the mid-90s, I was giving lots of talks to, to the auditors and to companies and to the boards of international companies, uh, particularly in, in Europe and in America, about the scale of the problem. And persuading the auditors and, and helping them write the text that would actually really alert the, the companies that they were auditing to the fact that there was a major problem here. And I was responsible for teams that were working on, on solving Y2K problems for major companies.
1: So once people did start to take this seriously and make preparations, what did that involve? What did maybe individuals do and what did big companies do?
2: Well, the the job, of course, was to find out what your vulnerabilities were. And the first part of that was to try and work out what software you'd actually got and what computer systems you'd got that might be vulnerable. And most companies discovered that they didn't even know what software they possessed. And then... It was necessary, having discovered what systems you'd got, you had to work out how you were going to check them in order to find out what kind of problems you'd got. And there were various approaches to that. For the big data processing systems, people would write programs or, or simply get a small army of people to read the source code of the, of the software, looking for data processing in order to work out whether there were issues. Other companies decided that their solution was to change the clocks, to to do the testing, to to simply reset the um, the date on their systems, uh, and watch what happened when the clocks rolled over the end of the millennium.
1: After the break, we'll learn more about what fallout there was from Y two k and what we should learn from what could have happened.
2: I'm really worried about it, actually. I think that we have built a a digital society on foundations that are not well enough engineered to support the trust that's placed on it, and that that can only end in, in some pretty serious calamities.
1: Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back.
0: Hey, podcast fans.
2: Looking for something fun to do over the festive period?
0: Maybe you or someone you know got a Google Home as a gift.
2: Well, we want to tell you about The Guardian's Year in Review, a project we've been working on with The Voice Lab.
0: It's a fun, interactive review of some of The Guardian's biggest and oddest headlines of 2018. So, if you've checked out The Guardian's podcast this year, we think you'll enjoy Year in Review.
2: To play, just say, hey Google, talk to Year in Review. Bye for now. Bye.
1: Welcome back to Chips with Everything. I'm jordan Erica Webber. This week, we're talking about the bug that some say never quite bit, Y2K.
2: Late on the evening of the 31st, we got a call from the air traffic controllers in Scotland saying they thought their radars had failed because they were getting no returns from any aircraft. And it turned out there was nobody flying. All the airlines had grounded all their aircraft because they were not They were nervous partly that some of the aircraft systems might fail, but much more that the, the um, airport systems would fail and they wouldn't be able to, to land.
1: Before the break, cybersecurity expert Martin Thomas gave us a quick history of the Y2K problem. As Martin explains, the Millennium bug did happen, systems did crash, It just wasn't as bad as people had been led to
2: expect. At four o'clock in the morning on January the 1st, on every airfield owned and and run by National Air Traffic Services, the equipment for runway visual range, as it's called, that that does the visibility on on the ground, all failed simultaneously uh, because they were scheduled... Every four o'clock every morning, they make contact with the system that controls them, and the clocks were different on the two systems, and that was enough to cause them to shut down because they detected that there was something wrong, and for safety, closed down. Uh, so all those systems uh, didn't didn't have any safety effects, of course, because nobody was flying, and and all it took was to restart the computers, and everything was was fine. But in a number of other countries. Uh, Major problems occurred, 15 nuclear reactors shut down, for example, for for Y2K problems. There was a a serious problem in the UK that was only discovered later, which was that the system that alerted um, mothers of a particular age that they needed to be screened for Down syndrome during pregnancy, Uh, turned out to be working incorrectly because of a Y2K problem.
1: So all these things did happen as a result of Y2K, despite all the effort that went into preventing too many disasters. Why do people still think that nothing happened?
2: A lot of the failures that did occur weren't publicised because they were embarrassing to the companies after all the work that had been done and all the warnings. So there was nothing in it for them to, to announce that they'd had a failure and if they could manage to fix those things quickly without the disturbance showing up or if they could blame it on something else, then they weren't likely to put out a press release saying we had a Y2K problem. The major problems that would have occurred had all that effort not being put in, of course, didn't happen. And so there was a large element of people necessarily talking up the scale of the problem beforehand in order to get the work done, and then, of course, people saying, well, that calamity didn't occur. And, and it's just human nature. When, when you manage to avoid a problem, it's easy to imagine that the problem wasn't there.
1: After Y2K turned out not to be anywhere near as disastrous as people had come to believe it would be, there was a cynical backlash. But Martin insists that's no cause for complacency. More potential bugs are out there,
2: and we need to be ready. We certainly need to continue worrying about anywhere where a lot of systems might fail simultaneously as a result of a single event. And there are a a frightening number of those still around. There is a a recent report from the Government Office of Science, a a Blackett report, uh, about the dependence of the UK economy on the position, navigation, and in particular, the timing signals that come from GPS, which means that if GPS were to fail, an astonishing amount of the economy would, would collapse.
1: Do you feel like people don't tend to learn then from things like this?
2: Oh, absolutely. Particularly if if people go around telling them that it was all a scam and and nothing happened. But what has happened since is that for economic reasons, we've taken the resilience out of lots of supply chains. So the possibility of cascade failures is much higher now. People don't realise that putting in redundancy for resilience purposes is like buying insurance. And, and just like buying insurance, it can be a very good idea.
1: In July 2018, my colleague Alex Hearn wrote that some experts predict we might see a Y2K-type problem in Japan when Emperor Akihito abdicates the throne later this year.
2: The Japanese calendar works in eras that are based on weeks of the emperor's brain and so it restarts with with a new a new era and you get exactly the same problems as the y2k problem if if you're processing data that goes across an era boundary then all the calculations will start to go wrong if you're if you don't process that boundary correctly if you're just relying on on the numbers and the, the weak number in, in, within an era and not noticing, not not recognising that you're working across uh, an era boundary. So it, it becomes exactly the same structure as the Y2K problem. So for, for a, a number of software companies have, have been trying to ensure that, that their customers had the ability to do testing uh, against a, a change of, of era.
1: Y2K is fixed in many of our minds as a classic, even comedic example of unnecessary scaremongering. But as Martin points out, even after heaps of resources went into solving the problem, some millennium bugs still slipped through the net. And these unforeseen consequences should remind us of just how dependent our society is on the reliability of software.
2: In particular, I think... Learning the lessons of Y2K that you really do need to treat software as an engineered product and that it needs to be developed in a rigorous way if you need to trust it. That's a lesson that we haven't learned. I'm really worried about it actually. I think that we have built a a digital society on foundations that are not well enough engineered to support the trust that's placed on it and that that can only end in, in some pretty serious calamities. So we, we're we building a society that is increasingly vulnerable in an environment that is increasingly hostile. And that, I, it just doesn't feel like something that ends well.
1: As we start to find out what 2019 has in store for us, we need to be mindful of these potential vulnerabilities especially as we continue to hand more and more control over to machines. That's all for this week. Special thanks to Martin Thomas for joining me. We're always looking for new stories to cover, so if you have something interesting to tell us about, send us an email at com. I'm jordan Erica Weber. Thanks for listening.
0: For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President, and this is Crunchyroll Presents the Anime Effect. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice. New research
2: by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com
0: forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.